You are everything, Jesus. You are everything. Thank you for your word today, Lord. God, even for my own heart, I pray that all of our hearts would just be open, would be tender in your presence, Lord, ready to receive what you want to impart. Lord, let us not be a sermon-proof people. Let us be sons and daughters who are hungry to receive your word, to receive revelation and encounter. Above all, Jesus, come and be magnified today. Magnified in every one of our hearts. Every one of our lives. We bless you. We bless you, Jesus. Amen. It's really hard to move on when you can feel him in the room. And we're not moving on from worship, but we do things like that because worship is a lot more than, than music. It's more than just a song. It's, it's actually engaging with the person of Jesus. So sometimes that looks like dead silence. Sometimes you just feel this touch and you can't say anything. You can't do anything. You can't move. And that's okay. It's always going to look different. Don't get caught up in, in what an expression of worship you think it should look like. But just let him touch you. Be open for him to do anything. Train your heart to be sensitive to, to what he's saying and what he's doing in every moment. And uh, always remember that Jesus is way more hungry for you to encounter him than you could ever be to, to encounter him. He longs for you. He longs for every one of us. He longs for us to know him, not just intellectually, but experientially. Every time in the Bible, when the, like when Paul, he talks about, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's not an intellectual knowing. That's not he just studied some words and now he knows a whole lot of stuff. We can all do that and that's powerful and that's beautiful. We should know the word. We should know all of those things. But what he's talking about is a tangible encounter with the one true living God. And it's only when you have tasted and seen that he's good. When knowing Jesus becomes something that is undeniable, where you'd have better luck convincing me that you're not real before you convince me that he's not real. It's in that place where there is no price that you won't pay to follow him. Where there is nothing that you wouldn't do to pursue him because you've encountered his presence. And it's in that space that you realize that that is everything that we were made for. To feel his presence, live in his presence, move in his presence. We've been in a really beautiful time as a, as a house. So I'm just going to have a quick drink of water. Um, there is a new chapter unfolding in the life of 24-7 Church. Um, you can feel it. There's a lot happening. It's more than just a beautiful new venue, although that's awesome and that is a big part of it. Um, but you can also feel that there's this transition that's taking place in the Spirit, and some of which is already spilling over into the natural. But um, what I'm encouraged with 
by my own life and, and having conversations with so many people in the church is that I think if you look around, you talk to anybody, you'll realize that everybody's life is going through some kind of a massive shift, change, transition, new chapter, whatever it is. Maybe it even just feels like things are being shaken a little bit. Like things are like intense um, at the moment. Maybe you're not in that space and that's okay, but I know that a lot of people are. And my first encouragement is that what rocks me and gets me excited is that something that Pastor Connor said roughly a year ago, he said to not view your life and your individual walk with the Lord and the things that are happening in your life as something separate from the house of God, as something separate from 24-7 church. It is no coincidence that as things are busy shifting in the house of the Lord, as He's opening up new doors, as He's shaking things, stripping things away, bringing new things, that that's also happening in our personal lives. Because no matter what you think or what you do, you are not separate from the corporate gathering. You are not separate from the family of God. You can live and think like you're separate, but you're not actually separate. And I really believe that so much of our life in the church really only begins when you realize that you're meant to live, belong, and thrive in the context of family. So we're in this exciting chapter that's busy unfolding, and, and it's intense. It's quite heavy um, in some ways, mostly because things are being shaken. Things that maybe we've held on to or things that maybe we've believed, things that maybe we're just going through that the Lord's actually wanting to bring fresh life, fresh vision on. Um, and maybe also, sounds intense, but to burn some things away. Things that maybe we've been carrying um, in our walks with Him that He never asked us to. And um, I just really believe that in this time, whatever it is that you may be facing, as worshipers, it is absolutely vital that we remain steadfast in who we are whose we are, and who we're after. We are worshipers. So no matter what season we find ourselves going through, it is essential that we keep the one thing as the one thing. Our, together and in our individual lives, our ministry to the Lord, our worship, and our following after Jesus must always remain everything to us. That does not shift or change depending on what season or circumstance or situations that we find ourselves in. No matter where it's, whether it's uh, filled with joy and celebration and breakthrough or whether you feel like you're in a valley and you're being drowned a little bit. No matter what season of life you find yourself in, worship to Jesus remains at the center of who we are and everything that you have been called to. Our love for the Lord is not dependent on where we are at in life. Seasons are going to change. Things are going to come and go. Things will get hard. Things will get easy. Things will get light. Things will get difficult. That's just bound to happen. But as the church, I believe that we're going to see a steadfast people. And it's for one simple reason, that we have given ourselves to loving Jesus and loving Jesus only. Where we won't be like the rest of the world where we're still searching for our purpose in our, in our jobs, in our families, in our relationships, in our assignments, whatever it is, in our gifting. But we're a people who are so secure in who we are that no matter what comes my way, I am steadfast in my pursuit of the Lord. Does that make sense? Worship must remain central to our lives because it's everything that we have been called to. It's the reason that we're alive. So today, um, this is kind of like uh, a part two of what I shared a couple of weeks ago, which was about a, a lifestyle of worship. So, Lukey, this is part two to that. There you are. This is kind of a part two to that. Um, 
This still very much ties in, um, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, um, we've been unpacking, uh, doing a series on the church, uh, Antioch in Acts 11 and Acts 13, and there's been so much um, that we've pulled out. It's been a good couple of weeks. If you've missed any of them, or if you just want to re-listen, I encourage you, they're on uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of those that you can go and catch up, and I'd really encourage you to do that. Um, But one of the key things that we've been pulling out of Antioch is that priestly rhythm of life. Um, something so significant about that community um, that, you know, was in Turkey is that they had given themselves to the ministry of the Lord. They had given themselves, young, old, no matter every different walk of life, they had given themselves to loving Jesus, to worshiping Him, that worship and prayer was central to everything that they did. And that is why they were such a powerful people. It's why we got the gospel. Um, because their love for Jesus couldn't actually be contained. And it's because of their pursuit of him that the gospel was actually taken out to the rest of the world, that Gentile believers like you and I actually got to hear the gospel. So it's really, really, really important. So today I want to build a little bit. My heart is to teach this a little bit, but I really feel um, almost like a, just a pastoral covering. I, I really feel like the Lord is going to touch us afresh today. Um, I want to encourage you, even as I'm just sharing, to to open and prepare your heart just for the Lord to liberate you, to lift your head. Maybe it's been a a difficult and a challenging season, but I believe you're going to feel fresh life today. You're going to feel a touch from the Lord and that you're going to be re-envisioned for why you're alive. That no matter what it is that you're facing, even if tomorrow you wake up and that situation's the same, your heart will be different because you've encountered the Lord. Is that okay? Awesome. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, we're gonna be, I'm going to be unpacking from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'm just going to read it so long for the sake of time. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted, us, granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." Wow, there's so much in there, really, really powerful. I'm going to pick out one or two things just for us to focus on, and really it's that first verse, um, uh, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. Say all things. Say all things. Come on. All things that pertain to life and godliness. This is wild. So already deposited in you because of the power of Jesus is all things, say all things, all things that pertain to life and to godliness. So let's think about that. So all things that pertain to life, that you could put anything on that list. Our families, our, our relationships, marriages, our jobs, the work environment, our emotional well-being, everything that pertains to life, His power has actually already deposited into our lives. And then not only that, but it says godliness as well, which is really, if I could explain that simply, that is the nature of Jesus being uh, demonstrated and evident in our lives. That's what it looks like to have um, godliness in, in our lives, right? 
And what rocks me is it says his divine power has already granted us all of these things. Not he's gradually giving us bit by bit and, you know, waiting for us to figure it out. It says he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But listen to this. It says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All these things have already been granted to us. And I believe wholeheartedly that it is the Lord's desire that every single one of those expressions, everything that pertains to life, families, jobs, marriages, whatever it is, all of those things have been designed to function and be expressed in a healthy, godly way. But the only way that we're going to see those things in a wholesome, graceful, powerful, light-bearing way is through the knowledge of Jesus. Now, that's not saying that my pursuit of Jesus is a means to an end. Uh, Who remembers last week, Con was talking about that. We know that scripture in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then it says, and the rest will be added to you. I don't seek Him first so that the rest can be added to me. I seek Him first because He's everything. And when you actually encounter Jesus, when you actually get filled with His presence and you know His touch, it's in that place where you don't have to be told to trust Him. You don't have to be told that He's faithful, but you have found Him to be trustworthy. You have found Him to be faithful. And it's in that place that you genuinely are set free from all worry of all things that pertain to life and godliness. I don't need to stress about getting my family together because I'm pursuing Jesus. That doesn't mean I'm neglecting my family. Absolutely not. I don't have to stress about my job because I'm pursuing Jesus. I don't have to stress about my emotional well-being and where I'm at because I'm following Jesus. I don't have to worry about displaying the character and nature of Jesus because I'm following Jesus. And it's in our pursuit of Him that we will begin to see every single one of those things that pertain to life and godliness come into a healthy expression in our lives. It's where every aspect of our life will begin to shine the light of the gospel simply because we have chosen to love Him. It's through the knowledge of Him. That means revelation and intimacy. Revelation is very different from information. I think I said this a little while ago. Information just means that you know something. Revelation means you've encountered it. It has become substance in your life. That looks very different. Godliness, when it is something based on self-righteousness, is very gross. And that has put a lot of people off, on, off of, of church and wanting to actually come close to God because he's been misrepresented. Because when man tries to be like God, he fails time, time, and time again. But when our, our pursuit and everything that I'm after is his presence and knowing him, not just intellectually, but encounter, heart to heart, face to face, his very nature will begin to be evident in my life. That's where fruitfulness comes from. Abiding in the vine, you're not trying to grow fruit. It's coming through your life because you're connected to Him. Amen? Does that make sense? So I suppose, what do we do? That sounds all good and well uh, if we're in a really good place. Things are going well. I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling strong. I'm feeling connected. I'm feeling spiritual. Um, I just feel like my, my relationship with the Lord is rocking. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm just seeing fruit right now. But what about when things are not going that way? What about when we are facing difficulties, when we're facing struggles, hardships, loss, grief? 
whatever it may be, whatever burden that you might be carrying right now, anything that you can think of, when things aren't looking so bright, what happens in those situations? I think it's often in those moments where if we're honest with ourselves, when things aren't going so well is when we generally feel like we're a little bit far from God. When we feel like we're not in a good space, so I'm not sure if I can actually come close to Him. I feel a little bit disconnected because I'm not feeling so good. Um, We don't know how to engage with Him. We feel like we can't engage with Him sometimes in that space. And then often it, it progresses so Um, For some people, they might even isolate themselves from family because it's like, well, just with how I'm feeling, I I can't fellowship with my brothers and sisters. I can't come together with the church and actually minister to the Lord because I'm just feeling um, like I'm just going through too much. I'm carrying too much in the season. It's just too heavy and I'm struggling. Anyone been there? I know I have. I'm not putting this on anyone. I'm, I'm just sharing my heart. Often we do that because we don't feel spiritual enough. And I think it's because we only have half a revelation of what intimacy with Jesus actually looks like. It is vital to understand, please hear this, it is vital to understand that whatever we are facing in life, whatever you are going through, no matter how big or small, I'm not belittling anybody's situation or or struggles, I'm just saying whatever it is, our ability to worship And our need for the presence of Jesus does not change. I'm going to say that again. No matter what you are facing or what you are going through or what you are feeling, your ability to worship and your need for His presence does not change. If we think that we're only able to worship through the good times, when I'm feeling spiritual, when I'm feeling strong, and wow, there's no burdens on my life right now, I'm just feeling light, breezy, everything's great... We don't have full understanding. Our ability to worship is not stronger in that moment. I think just our revelation on worship is a little bit stronger in those moments. That same scripture, um, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, in the Amplified, it says that His divine power has granted us um, all things that pertain to a dynamic spiritual life. And I love that word dynamic. As a musician, it makes me think of dynamics. So think about like, I don't know if you pay attention to those things, but as we're playing together, there's moments in music where we bring things really down. The tempo maybe slows down a little bit. Some instruments maybe pull out a little bit. And there's other times where it's just soaring high. Everybody's in high praises filling the air. And I don't know about you, but whether or not there's high praise or the low tender moments, we know how to worship. And it's the same in the context of our everyday life with Jesus. Whether you're feeling on top of the world and feeling very spiritual or you're feeling down in the dumps, it doesn't remove your ability to engage with the Lord. And I feel like this is really important for us to catch today because if we're going to be a steadfast people, if we're going to be able to to steward and be a part of what the Lord is doing in, in this time, in this hour, which is so exciting and the invitation is for all, I really believe that more than ever, we need to be um, positioning ourselves as worshipers. Not just knowing that that's who we are, but regardless of the season, I'm steadfast in my pursuit of Jesus. Does that make sense? There is nothing more natural for a believer than worship and intimacy. There is nothing more natural For the life of a believer, there is nothing more natural than our ability to worship and to be intimate with the Lord. 
Sometimes when we find ourselves in difficult situations and we're going through a lot of things, there's this thing that I've caught myself saying a few times where somebody may encourage you, you hear a word or you hear a friend encourages you or whatever, and they're like, oh, just look to Jesus, man. Just, you know, you've got to just get in his presence. You've just got to read the word. you just got to love him. And then, you know, we say all these things. And then sometimes the language, I've caught it coming out of my mouth where we go like, oh, well, you know, that's easier said than done. Like, I'm just going, this is just a lot for me right now. So that's easier said than done. And, and I really believe, this is what the Lord is doing in my heart, that that is the lie that so much of the church has, we've allowed ourselves to believe. That worship and intimacy with the Lord in difficult times is easier said than done. It's not true. It's not true. There is nothing more natural for the believer than worship and intimacy. So the truth is that, no matter where I'm at, I actually always have access to Him. I always have the ability to engage with Him. I always, um, He always has His arms open. He's always inviting me into the place of encounter to feel His touch, to be filled with revelation. And we have to position our hearts to a place of actually believing that so that we can start to take authority over our emotions and what we're feeling and go like, it doesn't actually matter right now. If this is going to hold me back from worship, then what are we doing? Everything that we're called to is, is worship. Everything that we're called to is intimacy with the Lord. And I want to say to your hearts, no matter what, I'm going to say it over and over again, no matter what you're dealing with, your ability to worship does not change. And your need for His presence doesn't go away. I, uh, I want to go, I want to show us why we're actually alive. I feel like we've been unpacking that a little bit in the context of worship, and we know what that is. So I've, I've been saying there's nothing more natural for a believer than worship and intimacy. And the reason for that is because it's how we were designed. And it uh, feels like we haven't gone back here in a while, but I'm going to go back to the garden. Um, and I just want to teach something. I want to show us the Lord's design for mankind um, as an encouragement for us to realize who we are, what we're called to, regardless of the times and seasons. Is that okay? So in the garden, um, Adam and Eve were obviously created. And I think the biggest misunderstanding, misconception about the story of creation is that there was just this garden that was made, and then Adam was made to now be a farmer, basically, be a gardener. That was why he was made. Like the Lord made this thing. He's like, oh, now I need someone to tend and keep it. So I'm going to just make this guy... He's going to be the first gardener, pioneer of the farming and gardening industry, right? Um, but actually, the Garden of Eden is to be understood as a sanctuary. Remember that um, Eden was not a garden. Eden was a region, and the Lord made a garden within it. And it was in that place where the Lord designed for, uh, to, to have a dwelling place for man to encounter Him. So... Uh, let me, I'll give you some scriptures. So there's two clear reasons that we can see in scripture to see the garden as a sanctuary, okay? So in Genesis 3 verse 8, there's uh, these words that are used to describe God walking through the garden. And it's the same words that are used throughout the Old Testament to describe his presence in Israel and in the temple, okay? So in Genesis 3 verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That word walking Fun fact for anybody that wants to know, the Hebrew word, I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly, but it's halak, okay? 
Um, there's another scripture, just an example, Deuteronomy 23, verse 14. It says, For the Lord your God walks, that's the same word, halak, He walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy. So, instead of thinking of the garden as just this garden that was just meant to be farmed and worked on, and that was the reason for Adam's, Adam's existence, we have to look at those different words and see that the role of man in the garden was very different to what we might picture on surface value. So when we see um, in chapter 2, when the Lord first makes Adam, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. That's often why we think he was just a gardener, right? Because of that language. It's very simplified in English. But that word for put, to put him in the garden, in, the, in Hebrew, literally means set to rest. So he wasn't set to work in the garden. He was set to rest in the garden, okay? Are you still with me? This is all going to come together in a second. Um, that same word, that put, the Hebrew, it's nuach. Um, it's the same word used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's Sabbath rest and also his desire for a resting place. Where's Max? Max is out there. She read that scripture um, this morning about Zion and that being the Lord's resting place. That is the same word that we, that we find in the garden, um, that nuach. It's the, the resting place of God, okay? And then when we talk about he was put there to tend and to keep, that word, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, was abad, abad, I don't know. Um, that word, whenever it is used with nuach, which is set to rest, every single time those two words are used together throughout the Bible, and there's many places. I'll give you some scriptures as, as an example. But every single time without fail, it means um, it's referring to the Israelites serving God or to priests who serve the Lord and God his sanctuary. Every single time, it's the same words. That combination means a priestly ministry unto the Lord. So this changes everything when we look at the creation of man, that he wasn't just created to survive and to work and to tend to all these things. But actually, right from the beginning, we have this picture that the Lord's design was to create this space for man to encounter him. And that the sole purpose for the creation of man was to be ministers unto the Lord. Before he physically tended to the garden in a very practical sense, he was first and foremost a minister unto the Lord. And this is absolutely, it's such a simple um, analogy, but it's really vital to understand because if we miss the purpose of creation, you will completely misunderstand the way that God does things in the Bible. You will miss every story. You will miss the motivations and the reasons behind why he, why he does certain things if we don't understand that first and foremost, his desire is for worshipers. It is why he made man. That is why you're alive. Yes, there's going to be work. There's going to be assignments. There's going to be all these different things to do. But the reason that you're here is not just because of those things. First and foremost, you are a worshiper. And that's why, regardless of what we're facing, our ability to worship doesn't change. It is like woven into our DNA is the ability to engage with God. Woven into the very core of who you are is a worshiper. That's not dependent on what you feel. That's dependent on the design that God gave um, to all of mankind. Does that make sense? So when we understand Adam and Eve in this way, uh, the beginning of creation, it, it speaks volumes to our identity as priests before the Lord. He created Adam 
the first man as a priest to clarify what he wanted for all of humanity, which is worshipers. People that would come together simply to love him. That is the reason that you're alive. This design has never changed. That's not a story for the beginning of time, a nice little feel-good story for the garden. The design hasn't changed. If we go back to John chapter 4, if we look at the whole ministry of the life of Jesus. I love John chapter 4. That's um, a story, the account with uh, him and the woman at the well. And uh, just fast forwarding, one of the things that he says to her, we know this really well. He says, the Father is seeking worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And I love the language of he is seeking worshipers because it reveals that the heart of the Lord, that that's actually his desire. If you want to know what God wants, he wants worshipers. He wants hearts that are fully given to him, fully ready to engage with him regardless of the season, regardless of the times. And then you think about the ministry of Jesus. What did he come to do? He came to reconcile man back to God. What does that mean? Reconciliation, we covered this a few weeks ago. It means to restore friendly relations. Not to create, but to restore. In other words, right in the message of the gospel, and we know this, but I just want to reaffirm some stuff, that right in the, in the midst of the story of the gospel, the whole point of what Jesus did was to bring and restore man back to his original design, which we see in the garden, which is to be priests unto the Lord. He did everything that he did, not just to blot out your sin. That was vital and it was necessary, but it is not the end of the story. He had to deal with our sin because it was sin that separated us from our design. It was sin that separated us from being able to engage with the Lord. So Jesus didn't leave us in that place. He took every sin, every burden, and every weight upon himself, and he was crucified. He was murdered in our place. Sometimes we're going to use strong language like that because we need to remember the price that he paid. The degree to which you value something is, will be measured by how much you value it. So if you don't know the value of something, then you won't pay a high price to actually go after it. If I know the price that the Lord paid for me to have the life that I have now, there is no price that I wouldn't pay to receive that as my own. Does that make sense? Paul says, I, I, I push and I, I strain to make these things my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's in Philippians 3. So the whole point of what, what Jesus did was to restore man back to our original design, which first and foremost, and everything about who we are, is to be worshipers. And all throughout Scripture, we have incredible, beautiful examples of various people that had revelation on this matter. And, and I think, I know for me, but probably for everybody, one of the most significant um, people throughout scripture that really caught this was David. He's the only, um, the only person in scripture that God himself said, I've found a man after my own heart. And what was he most caught up with doing? Worship. And I just want to say, when we look at the life of David, we can look at all the glamorous things. You know, when you think about the life of David, usually, I know for me, the first thing that pops into my head is the story of David and Goliath. But really, when you read his life, I believe that's one of the, the smallest, dare I say, least significant moments of his life because he did incredible things that were centered around um, the name of the Lord being exalted, not just in his life, but in an entire nation. 
his heart was so gripped by the presence of the Lord and by the glory of the Lord that he went to great lengths to see other people encounter him too. And just by the way, his life was far from easy. David wasn't an accomplished worshiper because he had a real smooth and easy life. In fact, when you think about right from the first time that we actually see him introduced in Scripture is, I would imagine, one of the hardest times of rejection that he probably ever faced. Where Samuel the prophet comes into town, ready with the word of the Lord to anoint the new king of Israel. And he says to Jesse, bring all of your sons because the Lord is going to choose one of them. Bring them all. And he brings all except David. Doesn't even consider him uh, worthy to be a part of that group to even be chosen. That's the beginning of the story of David. Yet, just before that, God says, I found a man after my own heart. So in the midst of rejection from his own family, nothing shifted his heart from being fixed upon the one thing. He knew why he was alive, and that was to be a worshiper. Even then, he's anointed as king, and it was years before he began to reign in Judah, and even more years after that before he actually took authority over um, Israel. He ran for his life for years and years and years and years. Rejection after rejection. There's a story, um, if you want to make a note, just in, in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Um, there's so many like this, but uh, I just want to read this part. It's just so beautiful. I think it's a good encouragement for all of us, but Basically, the context here is um, David is still fleeing for his life with, his, uh, with the group that, that is following him. And, and a lot of things happen. I'm just fast-forwarding a little bit. But he ends up actually um, finding partnership with the Philistines. The enemies of Israel is actually where he finds refuge. That is how difficult things are for him, right? And um, they're actually, he's going to partner with them, and they're actually going to go out to war against Israel. Like, he's actually going to fight his own people with the enemy, and um, on the way to the battle, the Philistines kind of wake up and they're like, hold on a second, like, you could turn on us at any point. This is probably not a good idea. You go back to the camp, you know, we'll take care of this. <clears throat> and when they come back, I'm going to read the scripture. So it's from 1 Samuel 30 from verse 1. It says, when David and his men came back to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome it and burned it with fire. And taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. So love, we have these little details where it says they killed no one, but they'd taken them off. He didn't know that. When he got there, he saw his entire city burnt down, his wife taken away, his children, and all of his friends' wives and children gone, just vanished. No idea what had happened. Everything burnt. And it says they wept until they had no more strength to weep. I don't know if you've ever wept like that before, but that's, that's intense, right? I, I often find... Just my sense of humor, that sometimes I read stories like this, and I'm like, my life's not that hard. <laughs> sometimes there's things in the Bible where you're like, wow, this is quite the story, you know. Um, but let me, I just want to fast forward here. So it gets even worse. Verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because they were all bitter in salt. So not only did they all lose everything, absolutely everything, family, possession, housing, all of that, now they want to kill him because... 
Well, it must have been his fault, apparently, that they lost everything, right? But listen to this. The end of the verse says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Even in the midst of extreme hardship and loss and grief, bearing in mind we know how the story goes, but this is unfolding live for this guy. Everything is lost and burnt. And he's weeping. It's heavy. It's difficult. It's a, an incredibly precious season in his life, but he still knows how to pursue the Lord. That moment, that encounter, that event, whatever you want to call it, did not stop him or make him lose sight of the fact that the presence of the Lord was everything. Where whether he was seated on the throne of Israel or whether he was running for his life and having all of his possessions burnt and his family taken from him, worship was still the center of his life. And that is why he was a man after God's own heart. This is the same with Antioch. That whole community was birthed out of persecution. They were running for their lives. Their friends had been killed because of the gospel. Yet their hearts for worship and ministry unto the Lord produced what to this day is one of the most significant communities in Bible history that we, that we know about. I'm saying all of this because I really want to encourage us. I know that a lot of people are enduring a lot of difficult things. It's a heavy season for a lot of people. And my heart in sharing all of these things is that never lose sight of the fact that you're a worshiper. And know that if you're carrying something heavy and you're going through a difficult season, know that He really cares. Sometimes we feel like we can only go to the Lord when we feel good because I think subconsciously we still believe we have to have it all figured out before we can encounter Jesus. And that's so backwards from what the gospel actually teaches us. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning that in the deepest, darkest place, when you had no hope and no God, it's in there that He still chose to die for you because of His love. So why do we think sometimes that when we're enduring difficult things that I can't go before Him when I'm already a son or when you're already a daughter? I'm encouraged because I believe that we're going to see a group of people rise up in their love for Jesus. A people that will learn to rally together because we have learned the secret to life. And it is following hard after the King of Glory. That no matter whether everything's going great or everything has gone to the toilet, um, I'm steadfast in who I am. Those things could be heavy. They might even cause grief. Sometimes I might even weep until I have no more strength to weep. That's okay. But what's not okay is to forget that you're a worshiper. What's not okay anymore from this day, mark it, brand it on your heart, is that your ability to worship never leaves you. And your need for His presence never, ever, ever changes. Is that okay? I just want to end off with the rest of that scripture in 2 Peter, and then I just really feel like the Lord is going to, is going to touch us. So we were reading, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. I'm just going to skip down just a couple of verses to verse 5. 
says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Let me just sum up those qualities. There's so much in each of those things that um, Peter is sharing there. But if I could sum up each of those things into one simple sentence, those qualities, those attributes... Sum it up into simply this, your pursuit and relationship with Jesus. But you supplement your faith by pursuing the founder and perfecter of your faith. Does that make sense? Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You can't produce these things in your life. So that's, that's not what he's saying. Sometimes I know I can read those things and be like, oh, okay, first I need to Google what virtue even means and then figure that one out, you know. <laughs> There's one word in here that I found really interesting, and it's something that I actually wrestled with when I've read it, and it's that word self-control, because it doesn't sound like a gospel word. Um, it doesn't sound like with everything that Jesus did, self-control just doesn't really make sense, you know? And we even read it, um, you know, uh, Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, that self-control is one of them. And sometimes when you study that, the, another translation in that context is lordship, which just sits better with me. But I really tried to find that this self-control wasn't actually the word and that the English translation messed it up. But it really, it actually is. Even in the Greek, it literally means self-control. Um, but I was encouraged because I actually looked up what that means. Sometimes we think we know what something means, and you do in context. But, um, you know, looking it up, seeing the actual definition of something, you're like, wow, that actually makes a lot more sense. Self-control actually means the ability to... Um, Control your emotions and your desires. That's interesting. You actually have, bearing in mind, going back to his divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So this is already yours, okay? It's a fruit of the Spirit. But the ability to have self-control is actually realizing that I have the authority to steward my own emotions and my desires, which means when I'm feeling like I'm in a whirlwind of emotions and I don't know what I'm feeling, it's, it's too much pressure and I don't know what to do, you actually have the authority within you because of the power of Jesus to bring control over that situation. Not your own ability, it is the Lord in you, which means you can bring focus to your emotions and focus to your desires to keep them simple and of one pursuit. You were made to desire Jesus and Jesus only. I just want to throw that in because sometimes self-control with put a little bit too much, um, what's the word, like uh, too much on ourselves to get this right. But it's talking about our emotions and our desires. Keep those simple. Does that make sense? And the reason why I'm saying all of these things are talking about our relationship with the Lord is because look what verse 8 says. It says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Praise God, it doesn't just stop there, because that sounds like very performance-orientated, right? But it says, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's talking about revelation. He's saying, continue to pursue him. That you already have all of these things, but if you want to experience them in your life, if you want to experience um, the light of the gospel and the power of Jesus touching every single aspect of your life and your godliness, then pursue him. And he will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of him. And I love at the end, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That has nothing to do with your assignment or what you think you're supposed to do here on earth. Your calling and your election has everything to do with your salvation and the fact that you're a son and a daughter and a worshiper, full stop, okay? Very important. Confirm your calling and election. In other words, be sure. Get revelation. Be confident that this is who you are, amen? For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's his word, not mine. You can hold the Lord accountable to that in a very humble and tender way. Um, you will never fall when these things are yours. And they come simply through loving the Lord Jesus. Is that okay? Can we stand? want to encourage us. Um, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's all good and well that we, that we hear a word and that we, we, we get encouraged and those things are important. But something that's really stuck with me over the last couple of years, I think it was Con that said it, he said that um, nothing of what you hear from the pulpit will change your life, but what you choose to do with it will. I can tell you till I'm blue in the face that you were born to be a worshiper. I can tell you that your ability to worship doesn't leave when you're going through difficult situations. And that the way that the Lord sees you and relates to you doesn't change. But unless you open your heart to that reality and pursue Him, that will never really be real in your heart. It's yours, but you might not experience it. And so this morning, I want all of us to just open our hearts to the Lord. Maybe close your eyes. Forget about the person next to you. This is you one-on-one -on -one with Jesus right now. Thank you for your presence, Lord. Thank you for your presence. This morning, I believe there is a, a fresh opportunity just to, to lay our lives before Him. I'm not talking about an altar call necessarily, although if you want to run to the front and give your life to Jesus, I absolutely welcome you to do that. But what I'm talking about is maybe you've been through a difficult season where, if we're honest, it's maybe been a little hard to engage with the Lord. It's been a little bit hard to encounter Him because of what we're dealing with or going through or feel like we don't have clarity or vision. Maybe we've been struggling with businesses. Maybe we've been struggling in our marriages, struggling in families or whatever it may be, whatever you may be going through. I believe that this morning there is going to be a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. It's going to be like the first time that you've ever encountered His presence. A time that you've never forgotten. 
See, the beauty of Jesus and the power of the gospel is that it's not just a one-time event. It's not just, hey, I saved you and sorted you out now, figure out the rest from here. He is full of mercy. He is full of grace. And His love for you is wild. Holy Spirit, come and touch every heart, every life this morning, Lord. Father, I thank you for a tangible touch. A tangible touch. Just keep your eyes closed. Keep, keep your attention and just your heart fixed on Jesus. He's here. He's present. Worship you, Jesus. Worship you. We worship you. We receive you afresh this morning, God. We receive you afresh, Jesus. In your heart, say to him, Lord, come and touch me. Come and touch my heart. Come and touch my life. It's okay to tell him that you've been struggling. But don't stay there. Invite him in. God, this morning, we choose again to lay our lives on the altar. We choose to position our lives at your feet, Lord. And we give you everything all over again. You are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy of all of our attention all of our affection, all of our lives, our struggles, our pain, our joy, everything, God. It's all for you. It's all for you, Jesus. I feel like for some, it's got to be in your own words, in your own heart. Maybe you need to lay your business on the altar today. And let the fire of His presence come and touch it. Maybe you need to lay your marriage, your marriages on the altar today. Maybe you need to lay your family on the altar today. Maybe you need to lay your emotional well-being, your mental health on the altar today. He is not intimidated by what you are going through. He loves you. Give it to Him. Give it to Him this morning. doesn't matter if you've given it to Him 50 times before. Do it another time. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Lord, let your fire come and fall on the altar this morning, God. Lord, let your fire fall on our hearts. Let your fire fall on our lives, on our minds, on our families, God, on our marriages, on our businesses, on everything, Lord. Let your all-consuming fire come and touch us afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, we receive you, Lord. We're hungry for you, Lord. And we choose to respond to you, King of glory. We choose to respond. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. 
feel someone needs to hear that your situation and your circumstance is not too far gone for the fire of the Holy Spirit to touch you. He is zealous for you. And the picture of the cross is our eternal reminder that there is nothing that He would not do to ensure that you experience all of Him. His pursuit of you is never-ending. Nothing is too far gone. Nothing is too far gone for the fire of the Lord this morning. Jesus.